Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. When abortion rights advocates talk about Roe being overturned, they often say things like, abortion is health care. They talk about the people who could die from illegal abortions or trying to end an unwanted pregnancy themselves. But many doctors are warning that these aren't the only people in danger, that Roe being overturned will affect health care way beyond abortion. In nearly half of states across the U.S., there are abortion restrictions or even outright bans that can now go into effect. A lot of these laws include exceptions. They allow abortions to save the life of a pregnant person. But many doctors say that the law doesn't actually spell out what that means. These laws absolutely put us in situations where we aren't able to do what we're trained to do. We aren't able to provide the best care for the person in front of us. Dr. Nisha Verma is an OBGYN in Atlanta and a fellow at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. She says that these laws are written by politicians, not doctors. There's not a moment in time, this line where someone goes from being completely fine to dying. It's a continuum. People get sicker and sicker. And so we have to be able to make decisions in that continuum with all of the training that we have without having to worry about whether the person was sick enough or whether we're going to get in trouble under the law. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, July 1st. Today, we're talking about some of the implications of the end of Roe v. Wade that you might not have thought about. We'll hear from Dr. Verma about the fear and confusion for doctors as they try to understand new abortion laws. Then, later in the show, our tech reporter walks through the steps you can take to protect your privacy if you need reproductive care. Dr. Verma spoke to my colleague, Alahe Zadi. And just a warning, this conversation gets into some pretty frank discussion of dire medical situations, so it might be intense to listen to. It will also be helpful to understand a little bit about how pregnancies work and about how miscarriages work. So if you miscarry, you might end up having pregnancy tissue in your uterus that you can't pass. And that tissue needs to be removed so you don't get an infection. As Dr. Verma told Alahe, the challenges that doctors are facing now in the wake of some of these anti-abortion restrictions aren't entirely new. Doctors in many states have been grappling with how to give care without breaking the law. So, for example, in Georgia, we have abortion restrictions that have existed for many years. Abortion has been limited for many people across the country for a long time. Doctors have been put in situations where we've 
had to figure out how to practice while being regulated by abortion restrictions for a long time. So as an example, in Georgia, we have a 24-hour mandatory waiting period. So from the time that someone is counseled about abortion to when we can provide their abortion, you have to wait 24 hours. And we know based on data that there is no benefit to that 24 hours medically. And so I've had situations in Georgia where I have a patient come in, for example, after breaking their water at 15 or 16 weeks, having some bleeding, and we're trying to decide like, oh, is she bleeding enough that she's in danger and we can intervene because you can only bypass that 24 hours if it's a medical emergency. And so we're trying to figure out, okay, this person, they have a little bit of abdominal tenderness, but they don't have a fever yet. So is that enough of an emergency? Is it not? And I've had situations where because we couldn't intervene preemptively, people get sick, right? They start bleeding more. They develop an infection. And these laws are telling us we have to wait for something bad to happen before we can act. And so we've already seen that with some of these laws like mandatory waiting periods. We're going to see that more and more with abortion bans. So one thing we've been hearing about already in the wake of this Roe decision is ectopic pregnancies. And Perhaps a lot of people don't understand what that kind of a pregnancy is. So I'm wondering, can you explain what it is and why the way you would deal with that situation might be different or more complicated now? Most commonly, an ectopic pregnancy is a pregnancy that is implanted in the tube instead of in the uterus. And so if it grows, it very likely will rupture through the tube and cause the patient to bleed significantly and if they're not taken care of, die. Those are not pregnancies that can ever result in a live birth. But we're hearing from people on the ground that there is concern that if that ectopic pregnancy has cardiac activity, doctors could be criminalized for intervening. And so we're seeing all of this confusion and fear pop up. We saw out of Texas after SB8, Senate Bill 8, that people with ectopic pregnancies were being turned away and sent to other states. And so this absolutely is going to affect ectopic pregnancy management, miscarriage management, a lot of things that people aren't thinking about right now. You know, let's talk about miscarriage. Um, Can you talk about the connection between abortion care and caring for patients going through a miscarriage? So the way that we actually treat an abortion and treat a miscarriage are the same. We use the same medications and the same procedures. And so there's a lot of concern that in states that are banning abortion, the residents, OBGYN residents, trainees are not going to get training in abortion care. They're also not going to know how to take care of people having miscarriages because they aren't going to be able to learn these essential skills that we use for both abortion and miscarriage care. They're very closely tied together. We're also seeing that these laws are affecting people having miscarriages. Um, Again, there's that same confusion and fear on the ground where these laws are affecting people that come in for miscarriage management. 
Can you explain a little bit more about that, though? Because I don't think a lot of people necessarily realize the connection between miscarriage treatment and care and abortion care and how one can kind of look like the other. And and that, again, that gray area, the situations in which abortion care is part of the treatment of miscarriage. Yeah. So the way that we manage a miscarriage, so people can have expected management where we wait and see if they pass the pregnancy themselves. But for many people, that is not the best option. Um, You know, that takes time. It can be emotional. It's unpredictable. And they may need to use medications or a procedure afterwards. And so a lot of people opt for medication management of their miscarriage or a procedure. The medications we use for a miscarriage to allow that person to pass the pregnancy are the exact same medications that we use for an abortion. And the procedure that we do for a miscarriage to remove that pregnancy is the exact same procedure that we do for an abortion. And one of the fears, right, is so... um, Emptying a uterus is a life-saving skill. That is a life-saving skill that we learn and are able to perform as OBGYN. So we have cases where people come in bleeding really, really heavily or with an infection, and we have to be able to empty that uterus to save the person's life, whether they're having a miscarriage or um, they need an abortion. And so there is a lot of concern that when you ban abortion— Half of residencies are in states that are predicted to completely or almost completely ban abortion. And so we're going to have all of these OBGYNs who aren't able to get essential training to be able to provide life-saving care to patients. And we're working really hard on that. Like as an organization, the American College of OBGYNs or other professional organizations are working on ways to get these trainees the training that they need, but states are making it much harder. Wow. So it's like the implications of these laws. It's not just the patients who need care today, but thinking into the future, there might be these exemptions for someone going through a miscarriage, but there may not even be many doctors available who know how to deal with that situation, is what I'm hearing you say. So someone could go in um, to the hospital with a very desired 15-week pregnancy. They broke their water. They're hemorrhaging. They're bleeding very, very heavily and may go in and there's not an OBGYN who can empty their uterus with a dilation and curatage or dilation and evacuation procedure because they weren't able to get that training. Um, And I think that's a very real concern. I just wonder if you have any thoughts about physicians, OBGYNs who are anti-abortion rights, um, saying that they feel like they've been able to still care for their patients, but the way they consider their patients are both the the mother and the fetus. Yeah. And I want to be clear. So I do full spectrum OBGYN. So I also deliver babies. I do labor and delivery. I do prenatal care. I do GYN surgery. So I do full spectrum OBGYN as well. I love labor and delivery. I love supporting my patients who have desired pregnancies uh, and experiencing that joy with them. I also um, love supporting my patients who aren't able to continue a pregnancy and providing that care for them compassionately and without judgment. I have seen many patients that have come to me from other institutions where they haven't been able to get the care they needed because their OBGYN 
wouldn't provide it to them. I think OBGYNs are able to choose what they can and can't provide based on their ethics. I do think OBGYNs have an obligation if they are not going to provide abortion care to connect a patient with someone who will. I I have definitely had patients that haven't felt like they've gotten the care that they needed because they were seeing someone for whom abortion wasn't an option and abortion wasn't something that was discussed to them or presented as an option to them. And that's been really hard for many of my patients. When you're talking with physicians, when they are right now trying to decipher all these different laws and they vary so much state to state, some of them are really old or they're outdated. They might have unclear language. Like what are the top of mind concerns for physicians in this moment? I think the main concerns that I have that I'm hearing from my colleagues are how to continue to get our patients the care that they need, whether that's with us in our state or in other states, while also protecting ourselves from criminalization. And I think we're trying to do both of those things, fulfill our ethical obligation to our patients, provide care to the communities and the people that we love, while also of, you know, preventing ourselves from going to jail, which also isn't a sustainable option. You can't put all of the doctors that provide abortion care in jail. And so we're also trying to figure out how to follow the law while providing care to the best of our ability to our patients. And it's really hard, right? Like they're not making it easy for us. And it's it's confusing. It's emotional. Um, it's not what we went into medicine for. We didn't go into medicine to be enforcers of laws that don't actually make any sense and are hurting our communities. Um, but we also do have to figure out how to follow the laws to the best of our ability. Yeah, like when you're in those, you know, emergency situations where you're looking a patient in the eye and you're trying to figure out what to do in that moment, how does it feel to also have to balance these legal questions in your mind as you're trying to figure out the care path forward? I mean, it's terrible, right? And I don't think most people, if you think about what you want when you go into the hospital and you need care, you don't want your doctor to have to think about laws and whether they're going to get in trouble for taking care of you and providing the care that you need in that moment. Like, that's actually not what most people want. That's not what we want to be doing. We are trying to, through the American College of OBGYNs, we're trying to create tools and resources to help doctors make these decisions. So one of the things that we're thinking about is creating task forces at hospitals and um, different institutions so that you have a group of people that you can call in those situations that can help you make these decisions um, and kind of thinking through how to make this work for people. Um, but again, that those aren't things that people have to do in any other aspect of medicine, and they aren't things that make the medical care better. They're just things that we're having to do because of these laws. Thank you, Dr. Verma, for joining us. Of course. Dr. Nisha Verma is an OBGYN in Atlanta and a fellow with the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. She spoke to my colleague, Alahe Azadi. 
Natalie Bettendorf produced this story. Ariana Cha reported on the fear and confusion that doctors are facing right now for The Post. We'll put a link to her story in our show notes and at postreports.com. After the break, how to avoid leaving a digital trail when seeking abortion care. We'll be right back. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. This week, The Post reported something pretty alarming, that the most well-known name in reproductive health care might be sharing data about people's appointments. A security company named Lockdown Privacy found that Planned Parenthood's own site has this web scheduler, and it's sharing information with a variety of third parties, including Google, Facebook, TikTok. This is Heather Kelly. She writes about tech for The Post. These outside companies receive data that's really sensitive. It might be your IP address, approximate zip codes, or service selections. I'm scheduling a pap smear, I'm scheduling an abortion. And privacy experts are really worried that this kind of information is an example of what would be really valuable to state governments or law enforcement that might be looking to prosecute abortions. As so many laws banning abortion are going into effect around the country, the stakes of keeping abortion care secret can be very high. And though you may not realize it, using the internet to seek an abortion might not be that secretive. You can be tracked in so many ways. Your Google search, nearest abortion clinic to me. Uh, Your chat messages with somebody else. Even if you're using a really secure chat app like Signal, they still exist for the other person. The person can screenshot them. That's something that could be tracked. You know, even when these apps are like, oh, we, we don't use your information like that, they rarely say, we're not recording that information. They're always collecting it, and there's always going to be a situation in which it could be obtained by law enforcement, despite any of these companies' best intentions. And so the safest thing you can do is to not share that information to begin with. But how do you do that? The experts that Heather talked with said that there are things you can do to seek reproductive care without leaving a digital trail. For your computer, use incognito mode. It's going to prevent anybody else who looks on your computer from seeing, say, your search history. Use a VPN or something like Apple's iCloud Private Relay, which hides your IP address when you visit these sites. If you can avoid using Google, use something like DuckDuckGo, which is slightly more secure, Don't use something like the Chrome browser, use Safari, use Firefox. There's a new browser called Brave that's supposed to be really private. And then also make sure you have your settings turned up to the most private options available. You don't want a search history recorded, things like that. And on your phone, and this is an important one, you're going to want to turn off location sharing for pretty much everything. You want to limit what third-party apps can learn about you through your phone, and they can get so much. So start just by turning off location sharing. The one other thing you should pay attention to is period tracking apps. They have become so popular. So many of us use them to track our cycles and what's going on with our bodies. But experts that Heather spoke with said that it's best to avoid using these apps altogether. 
Of course, they're very useful. You can tell, you know, when you're ovulating, when you might be more fertile, they can be used to avoid pregnancy. However, in general, I would just tell everybody to avoid using period tracking or any sort of reproductive health tracking apps. That data being collected, they may have the best of intentions, but that's not always going to be enough. Maybe just put it on a piece of paper instead. Use a spreadsheet, store something on your own device instead of trusting a third party with that extremely sensitive information. The biggest takeaway here is that, just to sound a little X-Files here, trust nobody with your personal data. You want to keep it as locked down as possible, even in states where you don't think your rights are at risk right now. Be careful what you share about your health. Be careful about trusting doctors and health experts because when it comes to legal issues, you aren't necessarily protected by HIPAA. Take basic precautions now and sort of make them a part of your everyday life going forward. Heather Kelly is a tech reporter based in San Francisco. If you need more information about any of the tips that she shared, we'll include a link to her story in our show notes and at postreports.com. And that news you heard about the security vulnerabilities of Planned Parenthood's website. In an update this week, Planned Parenthood said that it would suspend marketing trackers on their abortion search pages. That scoop came from our colleague Tatum Hunter. This segment was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by our senior producer, Ted Muldoon. It was edited by our executive producer, Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editor is Alexis Diao. Jordan Marie Smith, Ariel Plotnik, and Renny Svarnovsky are producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. Our intern is Natalie Bettendorf. The post-director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 